Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Matthew 19. We're going to be taking it up in beginning in verse 16. Matthew 19 and we'll be beginning in verse 16. Not long after the ascension of Christ back to the right hand of the Father... 40 days after Pentecost, he, uh, or at Pentecost, rather, he, he, um, his disciples, uh, Peter and John, were visiting the temple, as were, they were uh, frequented to do in those days. They were visiting the temple, and there was a man outside the temple who, outside the beautiful gate of the temple, who was begging alms of the people. He had been there for a very long time. And the scripture records for us in Acts chapter 3 and in verse 6 uh, an interesting encounter between Peter and John and this, this uh, very poor man in which uh, Peter says to him, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Peter seized him by the hand, raised him to his feet, and the man began to leap and dance and, and jump and, uh, into the temple, and it caused quite a stir. And you'll remember that account. The reason I bring that to your attention this morning as we begin is uh, just Peter's statement, I do not possess silver and gold, or in the old King James, silver and gold have I none. And I, I think about that because... Uh, that was true then, and uh, for the world, the Western world, and Christianity in the Western world, we couldn't make that statement. We wouldn't look at that man and say, silver and gold have I none. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, we have been enriched. God, in his providence, in his mercy, in his grace, in his sovereign rule over his creation has elevated the church in the West to a place of great economic prosperity. We are, by all measures, both historical and contemporary, a very, very affluent people. And so when we read the scripture, sometimes it's hard for us to, to understand just exactly the situation that was going on there. It, it's difficult for us to pray, for example, to, to give us our daily bread when uh, we have pantries stocked with food and supermarkets at our fingertips and, and all of these uh, luxuries that are ours. So sometimes it's kind of hard for us. And... Um, the Apostle Paul in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and beginning in verse 17 says to Timothy some, uh, some interesting words. He says, Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I've uh, titled the message this morning, beginning here in verse 16 of Matthew 19, The Deadly Deception of Christian Affluence. 
the deadly deception of Christian affluence. And this is another message in the series that we have been working uh, on in this part of Matthew's gospel called Lessons for Living in Christian Community. And so there are some lessons here for us out of this section of Matthew's gospel, verses uh, nine, or excuse me, 16 through chapter 20 and verse 16, so 1916 to 2016. And the topics here are the topics of wealth and rewards, wealth and rewards. And it is easy when, uh, when talking about wealth to basically assume that someone is rich or wealthy who has more than me. And, uh, and just to kind of look around and say that person's wealthy, that person's affluent, that person's rich, this message is for them, but I'm comfortable. I'm just making it. I'm getting by. And to, and to sort of deflect what the Spirit of God would want to say to us through his word. And it's not an easy message. It's a, it's a message that contains some pretty strong medicine for the soul. And so my prayer is for each and every one of us to listen carefully to the text and let the Spirit of God use his word to apply it as needed in each of our hearts. Let the Spirit of God put his finger where it needs to go that we might feel the weight of conviction where we need to feel it, that we might be exhorted and encouraged where that needs to be, and that in it all, of course, that we would know the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So, we're going to take it up here in chapter 19 and verse 16, but let me set a little background for you as we approach the text. We are at the very end now of Jesus' public ministry. The encounter that we have before us this morning happens after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, as recorded in John chapter 11. Following the resurrection of Lazarus, of course, the, uh, the Sanhedrin has come together and they have, have determined that uh, Jesus must die for the sake and the good of the people. God putting a prophecy in the wicked high priest Caiaphas' own mouth. Jesus, knowing this, leaves Jerusalem with his disciples and heads north and east to a small village called Ephraim. It's about 12 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And he hides out there, according to John chapter 11 and verse 54. He, he hides out there because of the death sentence that's been passed on him. From the village in Ephraim, where they hang out for a few days, and we're not sure exactly how long, but not long, they uh, begin a journey north, according to Luke 17. They, they travel north through Samaria and Galilee in order to join up with the Passover pilgrims from Galilee who have been forming in the Jezreel Valley, getting ready to make the trip south for the Passover. So Jesus and his disciples travel north to go south. So they travel north through Samaria into Galilee. There, somewhere near probably Mount Tabor. They join up with the, with the pilgrims and they begin their way south. 
As they are traveling together with this large company of Galilean pilgrims, Jesus heals 10 lepers, according to Luke 17. He also does a fair amount of teaching. He teaches concerning the imminence of the kingdom of God. He teaches about the importance of prayer. And again, we're, we're beholding to Luke's gospel, Luke 17 and 18, to, to talk about this. The route they take is to travel east from the, the Jezreel Valley, crossing the Jordan River before they begin to go south because all pious Jews would want to avoid Samaria on the way to the feast so that they be not defiled by passing through the Samaritan lands and thus be unable to keep the Passover. So they cross the Jordan. They travel down the east side of the Jordan River. They cross back over the Jordan at Jericho and enter into the land of Israel. Mark chapter 10 verse 46 tells us that. From there, uh, Jesus has a little ministry in uh, Jericho and then he uh, with the pilgrims, goes up the backside of the Mount of Olives to the little village of Bethany. There in Bethany, Jesus makes his headquarters for the Passover week, for the Passion Week. So he stays in Bethany. He stays in the house of Lazarus, the one whom he has raised from the dead. He stays there so that under the hospitality of Lazarus, he might be protected from the death sentence that the Sanhedrin has passed on him. He will then proceed into Jerusalem and back out again day and night over the first few days of the Passion Week, traveling back and forth from Bethany, which is just a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. So all that is kind of uh, going to happen, but, but right here, right now, in Matthew 16 and 19 and verse 16, Jesus is in Perea. He has not yet crossed the Jordan to Jericho. And while here in Perea, he is approached by a man who has a troubled soul. We are, can, can gain additional insight into the, into the encounter in Matthew, excuse me, in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, Luke 18, verses 18 to 30, they also recount it. And so along the way, I'll pluck a few details that they give you that the others don't, or that Matthew doesn't. Mark tells us that the scene here occurs while Jesus is leaving the home in which he has been praying for the children. And we looked at that last week in Matthew 19, 13 to 15. So Jesus had been praying for the children in this home. He now leaves the home as he is leaving the home. This man runs up to him and, and falls in a kneeling position before him and asks Jesus the question about eternal life. He asks him a question about eternal life as to how to be sure you have it. Matthew tells us that the man was young in uh, verse 19 of his account. And, uh, excuse me, verse 20. Luke says that the man was an official. So Luke 18 and verse 18 tells us the man was some kind of an official. Now, what kind of an official? We don't know. We don't know whether he was a, a leader in the synagogue or whether he was a member of the Sanhedrin. We're not sure, but one thing we do know is that he belongs to the ruling class of Israel and that he was very, very wealthy. So he is young. He is in a place of prominence and he is wealthy. 
He has become known to us through history as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Now, why did he come to Jesus? Why did this young man, who apparently had everything, come to Jesus? The answer is, we can't be sure. We can't be sure of why exactly he comes to Jesus. It it could be that that Jesus' extensive healing and teaching ministry has impressed him in some way, and so he is coming to Jesus to find relief. We do know he has trouble in his soul, and he's looking for relief. And so he comes to Jesus, maybe because of Jesus' healing and teaching ministry, perhaps, or perhaps it's because he was so impressed with Jesus' evident care and concern for children, maybe that. Uh, impressed him in some way but whatever the reason the man has this this burning compelling question and that he wants answered and he comes to jesus to get an answer to the question so far so good the sad part about this account and it is profoundly sad is that at the end of the audience with jesus The young man turns and walks away. He turns his back and walks away from the Savior. And that, beloved, is profoundly sad. Profoundly sad. So this morning, as we look at the account together, the account of the rich young ruler, I want to to look with you at four mistakes that he makes. Four mistakes that he makes that we cannot afford to make if we are to avoid the deadly deception of Christian affluence. Okay? We are affluent, but there is a deception that, that kind of runs with it that we must avoid. So, the first mistake is that we focus on ourselves and not God. First mistake Focus on ourselves, not God. Let's take up the text in verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And our first response would be, Well, ah, uh-huh. that poor fool thought he could do something to merit eternal life. It's obvious that he has never read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he he just has never read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Right. Since it wasn't written. (laughs) Since it wasn't written. This man, and uh, as we begin to see his character develop, there is much about him that is worth emulating. But this man is, uh, of, uh, is raised in, as a product of his culture, and he is firmly of the opinion that the way into Messiah's kingdom is, is paved by obedience to the law of God. That's his orientation. One writer says it this way, quote, he says he was sure that entrance to eternal life was within his grasp if he only knew how to go about it. He's lacking information. Tell me what I need to do. 
Now he is a leader. He is a leader in the nation of Israel. Thus he is a leader in a religious system that has been built upon self-righteousness. Yet there is something different about this man. Something different. Whereas the majority of the ruling class, when they approach Jesus to ask him a question, they have nefarious motives. They are, they are seeking to trip him up. They are seeking to trap him. They are seeking to embarrass him. They are seeking to cause him to make some kind of statement by which they can sweep him and his ministry aside. Not true of this man. This young man has a genuine desire to find relief for his soul. To find relief for his soul. He lacks assurance. And he wants to know. What additional thing he could do. That would merit the eternal life for which he longs. He's longing for eternal life. What do I need to do? Now face to face with this man. Mark tells us. And I think very helpfully in Mark chapter 10 and verse 21. That Jesus felt love for him. That says a lot, I think. Jesus had no tolerance for hypocrites. Jesus had no tolerance for religious phonies. Jesus had a genuine love and compassion for people who were hurting. And so when Jesus looks at this young man who has come to him, who is asking this question, a sincere question, the scriptures tell us that Jesus has love for him. Verse 17, and he that is Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Lovingly, Jesus picks up on the man's statement, uh, this, the use of the word good here. And he, and he uses it to direct the man back to God. He turns him back to God, right? There is only one who is good, Jesus says. Goodness, beloved, is defined by God. It is the essence of his character. It is an essential part of who he is. If we are looking for goodness, we need to look to God. And Jesus is asking this young man, in effect here, when he says, uh, why are you asking me about what is good? He is, he, is, he is pointing this young man to God, the only one who is good, and he is asking him to think about the implications of his own question. He's turning it back on him. What are the implications of the word good? Furthermore, Jesus wants this man to realize that, that, that eternal life is not something that one can gain like a possession. But rather, eternal life is a, is a journey of obedience to the word and will of God. It is something, notice that Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life. The man says, how do I obtain it? Jesus answers and says, this is how you enter into it. You enter into it. Now, the man came to Jesus. He was sincere. He was open. He was morally upright. But his focus was on 
What can I do? It was a self-oriented focus. What good thing shall I do? Now, I'm thinking about that a little bit. And I thought, hmm. If, uh, if I were to ask you, or if someone were to ask you, how is your walk with Christ? That's a question that Christians can legitimately ask each other, isn't it? How is your walk with Christ? If you would respond to that question by, by talking about how much time you spend praying, how much time you spend reading your Bible, how often you are in church, what, what ministries you serve in, I'd like to suggest to you that, that you have a skewed orientation. You have a self-focus. When someone asks you about your walk with God, our answer ought to be about who God is and, and what he has done and is doing and is teaching you in your life. Not what you have done for him, what he has done for you. And it can be very, very subtle, very subtle. And it's subtle for this young man right here. And Jesus wants to turn this man's attention from himself to God. What is God like? Is the question. That this young man might see how far short he really falls. This is the path of eternal life. It begins with God, not with us. And so the first mistake this young man makes is a focus on himself and not on God. Secondly, the second mistake is we fool ourselves with our law-keeping. We fool ourselves with our law-keeping. Jesus says to him, if you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Again, directing him back to God. And the commandments reflect the character of God, the nature of God, the holiness of God. And notice the man's response. Then he said to Jesus, which ones? Which ones? Now, the rabbis by this time had, had uh, taken the, uh, the commandments contained in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and they had, had uh, sort of drawn this out and said there were 613 separate individual commandments contained in the five books. So maybe it's not all that uh, unusual for the man to say, okay, there's 613 of them, which one? All right, which ones? But notice Jesus' answer. He cuts right to the heart of it here, right to the heart. He goes immediately to the Ten Commandments, to the Decalogue, to that section of Exodus 20 given right there at, at uh, Mount Sinai where the people have just promised that, you know, they're going to follow the Lord, their God, and, and God constitutes them a kingdom of priests, and then he gives them the law, right, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And so Jesus goes right to this in response to the young man who says, which ones Jesus begins to recite to him the second table of the Decalogue. And he follows it with Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 and the requirement to love our neighbor. Specifically, Jesus says in verse 18, quoting the sixth commandment first, you shall not commit murder. 
You shall not commit adultery, seventh commandment. You shall not steal, eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness, ninth commandment. You shall honor your father and mother, fifth commandment. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, which summarizes, right, the second table of the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments are essentially broken into two tables. One deals with our relationship vertically with God. The other one deals with our relation horizontally with man. And so these, these commandments that Jesus has, is citing to him, these are all commandments relating to human relationships. And Jesus gives him these commandments in order to, to, to verify or falsify his, his commitment to the first five commandments. So the whole law is is inextricably bound together, right? How we treat our neighbor, the scriptures tell us, is the visible proof of the invisible reality of regarding our love for God. So you say, I keep the commandments, right? One through five and where I am with with God, I keep them all. but, but But the horizontal ones I'm not doing so good at. Guess what? When you fail at one point of the law, you fail in all. And so Jesus is doing this to, to, to drive this, this man who says and is about to say that I've kept them all to a deeper understanding of what these commandments mean. I mean, you remember the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's easy to say, you know, I haven't murdered anyone. Oh, really? Well, let's just take a, just a moment or two to think about what character of God stands behind this. And, and Jesus says, if you are angry in your heart, you've already done what? You've murdered them. You murdered them. So Jesus gives him the second half of the Ten Commandments here, just simply without elaboration. And the young man says to him, verse 20, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? This is sad. This is sad. The powerful searchlight of the, of the law of God has been now turned on his heart, and yet his eyes are blind. He asserts that he has kept the law. In fact, Mark chapter 10 and verse 20 lets us know that he says, I have kept all these things from my youth. From my youth. It's not that I have just kept the law of God for two months. I have kept the law of God, he says, since the time I was a child, from my youth up. What does that mean? And again, remember, this man is not an overt hypocrite. This man is not uh, uh, someone who is, who is uh, trying to trap Jesus. This is a man whom Jesus loves. And so this man's answer is a sincere answer. It is sincerely wrong, but it is a sincere answer. When he says, I have kept these things from my youth up, what he is saying is that that he has, as a practicing Jew, done everything externally that has been required of him. All of it. All of it. And beloved, that would include, by the way, the regular and generous contribution financially 
to both the upkeep of a synagogue, the temple, and the poor among them. This man would be one whom we could look at and say, outwardly, there is a righteous man. There is no moral flaw in his character on the surface. There is a generosity in in his behaviors. There is much, much to commend him. And yet, he says, I have kept all these things. And then look at verse 20. What am I still lacking? What am I still lacking? There, there is a sense when there is something more and he, and he knows it. He senses it. There's another law to keep. There's, a, there's another good deed to do. Please tell me, what do I need to do? Why did Jesus point him to the law? Why did Jesus take him to the Ten Commandments? Well, I think he took him there because he he wanted the man to see, to reflect upon the the law and how it reveals the character of God. And, And he wanted the man to see that he has not kept the law. That that the law is not a place of self-satisfaction. That it is not the pathway to obtain eternal life. Because properly understood, the, the law is not a source of congratulation. But of concern. As the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 7. The law is not a source of comfort. But of condemnation. Right? Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says. So we have this complex young man here. At one level, he he senses the reality that there is something missing. And And he's inquiring about it. What is missing? And yet at another level, he's he's persuaded that essentially his problem is intellectual, not moral. Tell me what it is I need to do. And there is the assumption, I not only will try it, I can do it. I can get there. Again, a writer says he had an exaggerated sense of his own piety, which led him to self-sufficiency. An exaggerated sense of his own piety, which led him to self-sufficiency. And that's the danger. That's the danger of of, uh, judging our standing before God on the basis of our behavioral righteousness. That's the danger of saying that God loves me and I'm in good place with God because I do this and I don't do that, right? I don't don't drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls that do, right? But this guy's got a problem. He's got a real problem. But the problem is this. He has blinders on. He has blinders on. He thinks only in terms of external behaviors. And so he's blind to his real need, his real problem. And that's the mistake of fooling ourselves with law keeping. When we look 
to how well we're doing and judge our, our standing before God on that basis, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. So mistake number one, we focus on ourselves, not God. Mistake number two, we fool ourselves with our law-keeping. Mistake number three, we fail to see our blind spot. We fail to see our blind spot. Now, by definition, I guess we can't see our blind spot, right? That's why it's a blind spot. So we need someone to point it out to us. And God loves us so much that he points out our blind spots. That is an act of love. Sometimes God does it directly through the scriptures as the spirit of God takes the word of God and applies it to our heart. So sometimes it's we're reading the word of God and, and uh, the spirit of God just applies a passage in such a way that our blind spot is revealed. Sometimes. Sometimes God reveals our blind spot through the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. Sometimes God reveals a blind spot through the kind ministry of a brother and sister in Christ who loves you enough to tell you that your fly is down. Okay? Proverbially speaking. It's not an easy conversation to have. It's embarrassing and potentially confrontational. So we don't like to do it, but, but the scriptures would have us do it. And in community together would have us do it. But we fail to see our blind spots, and this young man is no different. All these things I've kept, he says, verse 20, from my youth up. What am I still lacking? Jesus says to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus says to him, if you want to be complete, and, and complete here is just a, is a, just a shorthand way of having, uh, if you want to have assurance of, of the kingdom of heaven, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, if you want that assurance for your soul, then here's what you need to do. Jesus is going to to. Reveal this man's blind spot. In a loving way, he is going to point out to this man that there is, there is something massive standing between him and God. And for this man, it is his love of money. It is his love of money. And so Jesus makes two requirements for this man. Number one, divest yourself of your wealth. Divest yourself of your wealth. Right? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now, this man has been giving to the poor from his youth up. He has been giving everything required in the law. And I would like to suggest to you that he has gone above and beyond the mere requirement of the law. This is a man that one would think generous. And yet Jesus says to him, sell it all and give it all away. In other words, 
Smash your idol. Smash your idol. And then, secondly, follow me as a disciple. So divest yourself of your wealth and follow me as a disciple. And you will have treasure in heaven. Now, I think it's reasonable to assume that this man, based on his position within the community of Israel, likely knew there was a contract out on Jesus' head. It had been let not much before that, according to John chapter 11 and verse 57. So impoverish yourself and follow me. Yeah, me, the one whom they're trying to kill. That's more than he bargained for. That's an answer to a question that he wasn't really asking. Beloved, obedience to Christ would be a demonstration of this man's faith in Christ. And it is by faith in Christ that this man would have the righteousness credited to him necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Turn from everything you have relied on and built your life upon. Let it all go and follow me and follow me. Now, again, one writer says, and I think says it well, the the release from material preoccupation is not in itself the secret of eternal life. It is the introduction to a new way of life as a disciple of Jesus. Let me read that to you again. The release from material preoccupation is not in itself the secret of eternal life. What the writer means by that is there are lots of people who impoverish themselves and they do not have eternal life. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that virtually every single religion has its Adherents who enter voluntary vows of poverty, right? Give it all away in following their false God. So in and of itself, that is not sufficient. But for this man, it is the introduction into the new way of life of following Christ. Give up on that which you were dependent upon. That which was the the secret cornerstone of your life. Let it all go and follow me. Oh, how I wish the account had turned out differently. Hmm? Oh, how I wish this story had ended differently. But we find the fourth mistake now in verse 22. We fall away when confronted with the truth. We fall away when confronted with the truth, right? We fail to see our blind spot. And then when it is pointed out to us, rather than embrace the truth, we turn and walk away. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much 
property. This man is drawn to Jesus. But the cost of discipleship is too high to pay. Too high. Notice, by the way, he doesn't go away mad. It doesn't say that he turned on his heel in a huff and said, how dare this itinerant rabbi from Galilee tell me these things. He doesn't go away mad. He goes away grieving. He goes away grieving. I think he understood. I think he recognized in the moment that it was all in the balance. That it was all in the balance. He had come face to face with the kingdom of God and he had flinched. And he turns and he walks away. How unlike the man in the parable of Matthew 13 and verse 44, right? Who stumbles on the treasure in the field and for joy of it goes and sells what? Everything he has in order to purchase the field. How unlike him. Face to face with the kingdom of God. And turning and walking away. What can I conclude from this? Well, I can conclude this, that, that, that money had gripped his soul. Materialism, wealth, affluence had a death grip on his soul. He had been deceived. He had been deceived. He says that he fulfills the second Tablet of the law, right? He, he has loved his neighbor as himself, Leviticus 19.18. All these things I have done, he says, from my youth. I have loved everyone. But the sad reality is he had not. He had not. Beyond that, his attachment to money reveals that he had violated the first table of the law. For he had substituted wealth for God. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other God before me. Money was his idol. Money was his idol. Now that's scary. I think it's scary. And I think the scary part in all of this is, as I've said more than once now, this morning, this man would be considered generous by any available external means of measure. This is the kind of guy that you'd want to be part of your synagogue. You can build on people like this. Morally righteous, outwardly virtuous, generous, position of authority, spiritually minded. This is somebody to look up to. This is somebody to admire. This is a life to emulate. And yet he is far from the kingdom of God. Far from the kingdom of God. Beloved, we're wealthy. 
We are wealthy people. So the lesson here is directly applicable to us. Directly applicable. You and I are living constantly, constantly in danger of the deadly deception of Christian affluence. Wealth is like seawater. You can drink it and drink it and drink it and it never quenches your thirst. Beloved, we can look outwardly generous. We can live lives that are exemplary on a, on a moral basis. People look at us and, and say, wow. And yet we can still be possessed with a heart of greed and idolatry. And that's what's kind of unnerving about all of this. Let me close this morning with a question. Let me ask you a question. If you were to stand before Jesus this morning, just you, just you, and Jesus were to say to you, I want you to divest yourself of your American lifestyle. I want you to get rid of it all. The cars, the house, the 401k. I want it all. Give it away. And then follow me to paths unknown. Paths unknown. What would you say? How would you respond to him? I think what we should do this morning is to have a couple of minutes alone with the Lord. So I'm going to ask each of you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just speak to God. Allow the Spirit of God to apply the truth of his word to you wherever it needs to be applied. And then I'll close. Our Father, we ask you to hear our prayers. Forgive our sin for Jesus' sake. Enable us to follow through on promises and commitments that we've made even now in these few quiet moments. Do a good work among us, O oh God. Purify your people. For Jesus' sake. Amen.